With all the trouble and tragedy and injustice and things going on in the world today, it is often difficult to know what to be upset about. You know, what, what makes the cut? What is a high enough of a, of a problem to, to take time to grieve, to, to struggle against it? And I think that in these days, it is worth our effort and our time to take a stand as individuals, perhaps in groups, and just say, no, no, do not remake The Princess Bride. As perfect as it is, there's no need to remake it. And if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, what are you doing? I mean, leave right now and go watch it. I'm, I, I'm kidding. By the time you get done, I'll probably be done preaching. But The Princess Bride is one of my favorite movies. It's a beautiful uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek telling of a fairy tale story with a lot of fun elements. And it begins with the story of Buttercup, this princess, and her farm boy, Wesley. And as the story begins, we find that Wesley is serving her hand and foot. That every time she says in this kind of snotty way for him to do something, he says, does anyone remember? As you wish. As you wish. And so there's this montage of her saying, do this, do that, clean my stables, clean, polish the saddle, I want to see my face shining in the morning. And he always just says, as you wish, in a kind of smoldering way. And, and then Peter Falk, who's narrating, says at the end of it, and one day, Buttercup realized that whenever Wesley said, as you wish, he was really saying, I love you. And I think in that is a very deep truth. That we were just talking about this in Sunday school. Our obedience to God is worth nothing if it doesn't come out of a deep and abiding love for him. And our love for God that we profess is worth nothing if it does not prompt obedience. In fact, James says faith without works is dead. And so if we love God, we will obey him. And we will want to obey him. The more we love him, the more when we hear his voice, we will say, as you wish. And when we say, as you wish, we, we will mean, I love you. And many people want to spend a lot of time telling God they love him in worship, but very little time doing what he commands. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. And that seems to be very much the state of mind of the Apostle Paul here. And as we look back at church history, we see many times when people have said, I love God so much, I have to obey whatever the cost, which is also the state of mind of the Apostle Paul here. You know, we're coming up on the 31st of October, which is most famous for being Reformation Day, the day on which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the, the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And he was summoned by the church to come to this diet of worms, this, this place where he would be cross-examined, and he had many, many people warning him, do not go. If you go, you will be burned, just like they burned John Huss. They will burn you at the stake. Do not go. Please don't go. We can't bear the thought of you going and dying. Flee. Go hide somewhere. And there was such a great weight on him. So many people who are against him. The, the entire machine of the Holy Roman Empire, which incidentally not holy nor Roman nor an empire, but th there was a lot of military might. There was the Roman Catholic Church of the time, which had an awful lot of power. And then there was the Office of the Inquisition sort of straddling the two. 
And Luther responded to those who told him, we, we don't want you to go. Please don't go. He said, though there be as many devils as tiles in the ceiling, still I will go. If they, there, there, there may be as many devils as tiles on the roof of this place, and I am not going to step back. I am not going to fade away into obscurity. God has called me to obedience in this moment, and I have said, as you wish. Now, how is it that this timid little Augustinian monk could stand up to all of those forces, essentially all the, the temporal forces of the world combined against him, Luther against the world? Well, I think the same way that Paul was able to stand up in the rest of what we see here in the book of Acts. And here we have the end of the third missionary journey. And remember the end of the first and the second, it was always rather triumphant. We go back home, we enter into Syria, we, we go to Antioch, and then we head down to Jerusalem. There's all these explaining what has happened. People are excited. They're happy. It ends with a bang. This third one ends not with a bang, but with a lot of tearful whimpers. People were not so much celebrating what had happened, but fretting over what would happen next. And that sets the tone for this passage. If you still have your map, pull it out. If not, there's probably one in the back of your Bible, after the last book of the Bible. And you'll see what is going on here at the end of this, this uh, journey. I just have to talk about the, the travel because the text gives so much uh, space to it. And because I love Bible maps. But you'll see that in three verses, we go through six ports. This is weeks of sailing, probably, in this passage, and yet it goes by really quickly. You'll see that the, the vessel that Paul is in is sort of hugging the, co the coast. It would be called a coasting vessel. It was a rather normal thing. He's moving through Asia Minor, up against the coast, stopping essentially at every port, probably for a day each time. It was slow going. And so on the southern coast of Lycia, Paul changes ships. He gets out of the coasting vessel. He gets into a, a much larger, sturdier ship that then cuts straight through to the shores of Palestine. He is anxious to get home. He wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost because he didn't make it in time for Passover. And we read here that he makes landfall in Tyre. Now, many people will tell you that Paul did not actually found the church in Tyre. In fact, he had nothing to do with it, but that's not entirely true. We see back in uh, Acts chapter 11 that when the big persecution drive began, that people fled from Jerusalem out in every direction as far as Phoenicia. That's where Tyre is. So in a way, Paul did help to found the church in Tyre because he created all of the, the alarm and all of the terror that caused people to flee there and bring the gospel with them. He didn't mean to found it, but he kind of co-founded it on accident. And now, ironically, he is meeting with these Christians, praying with them. They're embracing each other. Those believers who had fled his own persecution in Jerusalem, and now they're saying to him, don't go to Jerusalem because you will find persecution there. There's something kind of beautiful in that and something a little bit odd. This whole passage, of course, is rampant with emotions, emotionalism. Emotions are running high. It begins with, when we tore ourselves away from them, meaning the Ephesian elders at Miletus, they had to tear themselves away. Everyone's crying. Everyone's wiping their nose on their tunic. Everyone is just, just kind of broken. And at each point in this tour, that sort of thing seems to happen. Emotions are high. And entire 
he is asked or almost sort of commanded not to go to Jerusalem. Please don't do it. Don't go there. You will regret it. We don't want to see anything bad happen to you. We read about how they, they accompany him with wives and children, like the whole family, they're all together. These people that Paul used to persecute are now his family, and they get down and they pray with him on the beach, and it's this beautiful moment. You've got to imagine, though, that in that, there were some of those pointed prayers meant to manipulate, those prayers that say, Lord, we just ask that our brother Paul would be wise and not go anywhere dangerous or do anything foolish. Lord, you know, for your glory. And then we read that through the Spirit, they were saying to him, pleading with him, don't go, don't go down to Jerusalem. But he continues on his way. Next, he goes to Caesarea. And there we see actually several blasts from the past. If you've been keeping track, Philip is there. You remember Philip? He was one of the original seven uh, deacons. Uh, very gifted evangelist. He's the one with the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, he seems to have fled from that great persecution as well. And for 25 years or so, he's been making his home here in Caesarea, a bedrock of the church in that town. He has four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. They're prophesying. They're fulfilling that great uh, Joel prophecy that was quoted on the day of Pentecost. And here he also bumps into people saying, don't keep going. Don't go to Jerusalem. Just like they said to Luther, don't go, don't go to Worms, you will be burned at the stake. They're saying, don't go to Jerusalem, we have a bad feeling. And then the bad feeling grows some legs, because this prophet, Agabus, rolls into town. Another blast from the past. Remember, he accurately predicted this famine that would come on the entire Roman world a little bit earlier, back in chapter 11. Well, he also prophesies Paul's fate if he goes to Jerusalem. And he does it in this very memorable way, this way that has a great effect on people. Agabus is, is like an OG prophet, or at least like an OT prophet. Remember in the Old Testament, those prophets would often act things out. So Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they wouldn't just tell you. They want to really get it into your head. And so they would kind of put on a show. Well, Agabus says, hey, give me your belt takes Paul's belt, ties his hands and his feet, and he says, the man who owns this belt in Jerusalem, he will be bound in this way. And it is such an effective picture that we go from reading, they pled with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, to reading, we pled with Paul not to go. Meaning that, that even Luke and Paul's companions are pleading with him, do not go. We, we don't want to see you bound. We don't want to see you hurt this reminds me of Jesus' own disciples. When he was setting his face to Jerusalem, saying, no, don't even say it. Don't, you're not going to go there and die. You're not going to be rejected and crucified. And they never ever really touched on, and you won't rise again. They always emphasized that negative. We don't want to see you uh, die. Just stop talking crazy. And yet, we see his disciples, with pure motives, begging him, Paul, not to go down this road that ends with him going into Jerusalem, just as Jesus' disciples did. Paul's response, why are you breaking my heart? Well, you're, you, you guys are going to make me, I'm not crying, you're crying, we're all crying. Stop it! It's a rebuke. Why are you weeping when you know I'm ready? Ready not only to be chained and bound and imprisoned, but even to die for the sake of the gospel. 
He has a spirit in him that you see as you look through the, the ages. You look into the chapters of church history where there has been great danger and persecution. There are always those with this great tenacity. I think of those circuit-riding Methodist preachers. There, there was a, a notion amongst them that Christians would enjoy the meeting most, which cost them the greatest sacrifice. I think perhaps this is why we see the church in the West continuing to kind of get lethargic and lazy and, and, and like a fatted calf. Hey, it's, time's coming when we're going to get a little leaner and I think we're going to value things more because they're going to cost us more. But, but these circuit rider preachers would say that a 50-mile journey was a pretty sure pledge of a profitable meeting. They were so relentless in their ministry, there was actually a saying on kind of a stormy, nasty day, there's nothing out today but crows and Methodist preachers. Well, I mean, Paul was obviously Baptist, but he had that Methodist preacher vibe to him, did he not? He says, I am compelled. He said this back in chapter 20, read verses 22 to 24. The Holy Spirit is compelling me to go to Jerusalem. So this brings us to the main question, I think, in this text, at least the one we're going to look at this morning. What do you do when the Holy Spirit's compelling Paul to do this, but in the Spirit, other Christians are saying, don't do it? Is there a contradiction? Is, is the Holy Spirit messing with them, telling one guy one thing, other people something else? Well, an easy answer, and one that I think has some truth to it, is that the difference here is not in what, what the Spirit is communicating, but in the conclusions being drawn. What should be our response to what the Spirit has revealed, that Paul will be bound and thrown in prison? For Paul... The deciding factor is the fact that Jesus called his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. And then that call, that, that call to suffer for the name for the sake of the gospel is a call to every believer, including you and me. And, and more than that kind of general truth, Paul has been told from the very beginning what his ministry would look like. Go back to chapter 9 when, when Ananias, the poor guy, is told, hey, you know that murderer that wants to drag you off to prison? I want you to go talk to him. And he said, wait, what? I don't want to do that. And God says, go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the Spirit didn't just tell him this once. Paul said in our passage last time that in every city along the way, God was reinforcing to him that in Jerusalem would be prison and suffering. This isn't some wrench thrown into the works. This is the works. This has been the plan all along. And, and as his friends look at it, they can't see that because of how emotional things are in this moment. Oswald Chambers wrote, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose, wrong with you, meaning. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. No saint dare interfere with the discipline of suffering in another saint. I think Paul's friends needed to read them some Oswald Chambers. Sadly, it didn't work out timing-wise. Paul's friends then, certainly I think with good motives, if they're selfish, it's not intentionally, and with very pious language, try to push Paul away from what he believes is God's revealed will for his life in the coming days. And, and the question comes up, was he right? 
Who's right here? There are those, even James Montgomery Voice, one of my favorite uh, preachers, he, he passed away some years ago. He was a pastor in Philadelphia, a Presbyterian, and he wrote a whole sermon and a whole commentary chapter about how Paul had missed the boat here by disobeying. God kept trying to tell him. He kept sending all these people, and look what it cost him. I don't understand that. But there's still this question. I mean, how can we have two different opinions of what God is saying. And both of them are accurate. Nobody's lying. So with all these closed doors, quote-unquote, and Paul doesn't seem to quote the closed-door card when he faces trials, but his friends want to, how does one know what is God's will? How do you know what is God's will for your life? When you say, should I do this or not? Some people are saying yes, some people are saying no. Maybe everyone's saying no, and in my spirit, I'm, I'm thinking, yes, I have to do it. And I think God is behind that feeling. Well, how do you know the will of God? Well, I think first, really briefly, we have to define some terms. The will of God can mean a few different things. We talk about the sovereign will of God. When we talk about the sovereign will of God, we talk about how God is all-powerful. And there's this providential way in which being all-powerful, power, he is in absolute control over everything. Even according to the book of Proverbs, if you roll some dice, God's in control of whether you get snake eyes or what comes up. Flip a coin, God is in control. Within that, we talk about God's permissive will. The notion that he allows us even to do things that are contrary to what he would want for us, but he permits it, and he then goes and turns around and uses those things for his glory. One example... Paul accidentally helping co-found the church in Tyre by persecuting the church before his conversion. There's that. Then there's the moral will of God. This is what God wants for us because he wants us to be righteous and holy, and he created us for that. 1 Thessalonians 4, for example. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. In that, I mean, today it has become up in the air whether God is pro or against sexual immorality, but for those who are grounded in the scriptures, it's not a question. It's a simple question of obedience. If we love him, we won't try and warm out from his commands. We'll keep his commands. We'll say, as you wish, Lord, and we will be sanctified. But what many people mean when they say God's will is neither of those things. What they mean is this sort of invisible plan that God set out didn't tell them about, but put in front of them, and they got to find it, and it is stressful, and it is a struggle. I don't know if you, have you guys ever done a scavenger hunt here sometime before I was a pastor? We need to do a scavenger hunt. It's so fun. You have to find a series of elaborate clues in order to get to the end before the other teams. It gets you driving all over town, and I don't know, I feel like smartphones would kind of take some of the fun out of it, but there's clues, there's puzzles, there's all this stuff. It's fun, but it's not meant to be our lives. People worry that if I don't get to this point, then this point, if I get off track somewhere, I will never get where God wanted me to be, and my life will be a waste. In fact, it's not even like shooting at the bullseye of a target. Rather, it's like just having the bullseye. And if you miss it, even by a little bit, your arrow's going to sail off in a different direction. And then what? Nothing but regret, because you've missed the boat. That is not how God's will works. If you are a believer, God's will for your life is a circle, not a point, not a maze, not a secret line that he has drawn that you cannot see and you have to decode. 
And, you know, you don't live like this all the time anyway. Only with certain big decisions, you drive yourself crazy. If you stopped and thought of every decision, what does God want me to do? I don't want to get off track. What jelly to put on your toast this morning? What shirt to put on? Does God care about that? What pew you sit in? Some of you think God has ordained that. But 99.99% of our decisions, we don't worry about missing the next stop in the scavenger hunt, even though it could be a very decisive thing. We don't know. And I recognize that this is kind of going to bristle against some people because they've been raised their whole life to think, what I need to do, my job is to find God's will, and I have to kind of be led around uh, from place to place to point to point, and I'm not making decisions so much as I am making, like Paul, going along the coast. I've got to find the right stops to make. Well, it's been said sacred cows make the best hamburger, but they're easy to choke on, so chew this over really well and see what you think. Some might point me to Proverbs 3 and say, what doesn't the scripture say? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. God will direct your path. Well, look that up in any newer translation and find a better translation. He will make straight your path. He will make straight your path. This is not God directing you through some elaborate maze, but helping you to walk the narrow path, the narrow road that leads to life. Just a couple days ago, my parents were in town, and uh, I said, I'm taking you out to dinner. It's very rare that I actually say it before my dad does. And I said, you know what? Here's three options where we could go. New Mexican place up in Eastwood. It's super, super good. There's this smokehouse, Arcadia, right by my house. I think you'd like that. Or we've got one of those Japanese steakhouses where they like toss the shrimp into your mouth and make an onion volcano. My parents didn't say, hmm, which two of these are poisoned? Which two of these are a track, a trick? No, all three were legitimate choices. And yet, even though we recognize that in something small, like where am I going to eat dinner, we often think as we approach crossroads in life, God, there are four options. I need you to cancel three of them for me and show me which one you've picked for me. I need you to make, just take everything off the table but one. Why? Take away my freedom. Why? Celebrate the fact that you've got these options. Many people have fewer options than you do. They are a great gift from the Almighty. We have options. Thank Him for them and choose something wisely. You know, when you have a map, you have almost infinite options of where you might go. And yet, as you drive down the road, you don't put the map on... Christina, a map is like GPS but paper. You, you don't put the map on the steering wheel and try and find the invisible ink as you go. You get in a wreck. Rather, you keep your eyes on the road, on the lines on the road, so you don't get off track and go and smash your car or run into an abutment or something. You keep your eyes on the guardrails that are there to keep you safe. That's God's will for your life. There are guardrails there. There are lines to direct. There is God's holy word. It tells you God's will for us to be holy people, to be upright. Apart from that, you have freedom. You, you are on the road and you have freedom to choose what you will. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Maybe that's a bit simplistic, but I can't think of a situation if you are truly loving God and obeying Him, which love leads to obedience, I don't know where it would fail. 
You know, it's okay to actually say, I decided to do this. This big life decision, I decided to do. You don't have to say, God led me. You can say, I, I thought it through. I didn't pray for wisdom. I talked to some, I decided this is the best option. People feel like, I think, especially in our, our Baptist circles, you've got to be very spiritual. So they say, God led me in this direction. Now, I'm not saying you're lying if you say that, or even that you're wrong, but that you don't have to. You can make a decision. It sounds more spiritual to say God led me, and it makes you bulletproof. No one can say, well, that was stupid, because now they're saying God was stupid. But it's okay to just make a decision. You know, one option might be wiser, one option might be more productive, but it's not sinful unless it violates God's moral will revealed to us in Scripture. In Romans 4, we read, where there is no law, neither is there transgression. And where there is no law in our lives prohibiting what we might do, well, then we are free to do it without sinning. With Paul, we can say all things are permissible, although not all things are beneficial and seek wisdom in what we do. In fact, we might think of Paul as being led in this very specific way through these things, right? God's even saying, okay, don't go up here. Don't go down into Asia. You've, got, you've only got one choice, and, and, and that's what we want him to do for us. Block that, block that. Give me just one option, then I don't have to think about it. And yet, this is what Paul says about a different trip to Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 16, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. If it seems advisable, not we're going to do some formulaic prayer or put down a fleece or try and divine the will of God for this thing. We're going to put our heads together and say, is this smart? And trust that God has given us the freedom to do that. I fear that we often use the supposed inscrutability of God's will that we can't figure it out as an excuse to never know it and therefore never have to do it. Now how, though, the question remains, can we know what God's will is in a given situation if we're seeking his wisdom, if we're seeking his direction? You're not on your own. He is with you. I, I've shared with you before a very popular uh, sermon illustration I've heard many times from different pulpits. It's a maritime illustration, and I like those for some reason. And it has to do with, supposedly, centuries ago, if someone was coming into a very rocky port and it was dark, the only way that they could avoid dashing their boat to, sh to, to pieces and being shipwrecked on the, uh, the rock walls would be, there would be three lights and it'd be in a line. And that line was perfectly how you would have to approach in order to safely get to shore. And so you would line up all three lights and where they aligned, you were safe. If they were coming apart and it looked like three, then you were in trouble. If they looked like one, you were okay. And the illustration would say, you need to take these three lights. The light of Scripture, what it tells us. The light of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Perhaps the conscience that, that you are. We, we talked a bit about this in Sunday school. I don't know how much we can differentiate those two things. But the unction within. And then the, the counsel of godly Christians. Where these three things line right up. You're safe to go ahead. That's God's will. Well, if they line up and you want to do it, go for it. Absolutely. But sometimes it, the thing doesn't work. It breaks down. What if you have two options and those three don't line up for either? What do you do? Nothing? That could be the temptation, certainly. If I have two choices in front of me and I go to a multitude of mature advisors, what if some of them say absolutely do A and some of them say absolutely do B? 
Some of them say, you need to go to Jerusalem. Some say, don't go, I beg you. Let me give you some guidelines, I think, with the remaining time we have today for how in these situations, with the knowledge that we have freedom in Christ to do anything that's not permitted, all things are open to us if we are not violating God's will. How can we be uh, about the wisest use of our time? How can we try to avoid making a mistake? Well, first of all, yes, those three things are good. Take time to search God's word and pray God's word. And, and, and spend time in prayer seeking God to, to open your eyes and illumine what might be for you in God's word. Secondly, yes, in prayer, seek the Holy Spirit to give you uh, the, the desire to do what would please him. Seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and leading. Ask for wisdom. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it and God will give it to you. That's a promise. And yes, thirdly, go to other mature believers, several of them, and seek their wisdom. Two heads are better than one. A cord of three cannot be easily broken. But let me give you a couple of, of additional pointers. First of all, Take your time when you can. We live in a hot take culture. Snap judgments. Everybody's an expert on everything. You, you don't even read the article. You look at the headline and go, I know what I think about that. Let me tell the world. Click tweet. All right, moving on to the next thing. Don't approach God's will, your life, things of great magnitude in that way. And don't go to people who do for advice, for counsel. There are many people who are quick to determine and declare what God's will is for someone else. Oh, I know what you ought to do. I can solve all your problems. No problem. In fact, we, we often will see people making almost light of our struggles because they're so quick to say, here's the answer. Oh, that's annoying. Don't be that guy either. And, and you know, in our hot take culture, it is unusual to say, I'm going to take a day and withdraw from everything and go pray about it. But Jesus did that. Before he called his 12 disciples, Jesus prayed all night long. If anybody had a sanctified gut who should have been able to just go, ah, all right, I'm not even going to think. I'm just going to go, John, James, Peter, Andrew. It was Jesus. But he prayed all night long. When it was time for him to go to the cross, he went and he prayed. And his disciples had been saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And he rightly rebuked them. But in that moment before he went and did this very important thing, this thing that would be the, the greatest thing to ever happen in the history of the world, he prayed and said, God, is there some other way that I miss something? If there's another way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Some decisions require more time, more prayer, more counselors. Be wise about how much time. You, I mean, if you're getting married and this is a lifelong commitment, you need to take some time to be in prayer, take some time to talk to others and read the scripture. Don't rush into it. If you're thinking about loaning 60 bucks to a neighbor or a friend, if that's a lot to you, take some time to think about it. Take some time to pray. But remember, when do they need it? When am I going to become a source of stress and not a way to alleviate it? There's a timeline on some things. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so he had to make a rather quick decision. He had to get moving. You know, sometimes you don't have a lot of time to operate, and you do just have to say, God, guide me in this moment. When Jesus ha had just a few hours before he knew he would be arrested, he, he took advantage of it 
But he knew that he didn't have all the time in the world. So he spent time in fellowship and in worship with his, his friends, his disciples. And then he went off by himself to pray. And he prayed earnestly and zealously for God's leading and God's protection, not only for him, but for his, his disciples. Luther was able to get a 24-hour extension so that he, he didn't say, you know what, I've thought it through and I cannot recant. That's it. No, he said, I need 24 hours to pray. They said, fine, you have 24. He went and he prayed the whole time. He talked to Father Stoppitz, his trusted advisor. He, he looked in the scriptures and then he came back and he said, hey, unless you can show me from scripture and plain reason where I have erred, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He took the time, though. If you can take the time, take some time before you make a huge decision. We live in a hot-take culture, and that is going to be our undoing if we don't figure out how to change course. And it, it's difficult sometimes to know when to stop. Recognize that, yes, it's uh, uh, wise to take some time, but set yourself an endpoint. Because it's also very easy to continue thinking about and praying about and struggling over something indefinitely to avoid making a decision. And sometimes a decision makes itself because you take so very long. It can be a defense mechanism of sorts. I need a little more time. I need a few more conversations. I need, I need more prayer. You pray for me. Come on. And it's like, are you, you're just deciding whether to get a red or a green Saturn. I mean, who cares? Now, after seven days... Paul had to be in Jerusalem if he was going to make it. That's just two weeks away. That's a different issue. And I think that that kind of informs why he seems to ignore my second piece of advice, which is really close the yap. That's, that's uh, to quote Irenaeus, the church father. Close your yapper and open your ears and listen to people. I often have people come to me for counsel because I'm a pastor. People I aren't even in the congregation. People I meet on the street. My, my hairdresser the other day. What do you do for a living? I'm a minister. Oh, let me tell you a bunch of details about my life and ask you what you think I ought to do. Well, that is good, I suppose. But the whole time then, anytime I started to say, well, I think, and she'd come in with more. I think she was trying to stop me from saying something she didn't want to hear. We have a very unusual situation here where the Spirit told Paul to do this. Well, everyone else thinks it's a bad idea. And that should have given him pause. I don't know if it did, but it should have. He had to go, so it couldn't be a long pause. But he should have paused briefly. And he stayed seven days, of course, in that one town. And it looks like he did have time to think about this and pray about this. We never want to discount everyone else. That's, that's, like, that's narcissism. Megalomania. I've heard people tell me they have the gift of preaching, but nobody has the gift of listening. Maybe you don't have the gift of preaching. There's people who think they, they're called to a music ministry, and then they go through the like, free will offering in the back, and people have just dropped those spiritual gift inventories. Maybe find something else that you're good at. I don't know. But there are times, and this, I believe, is one of them, when even when people all around him are saying, go the easy way, Paul knows God is calling him to take up his cross and go the hard way. To walk after Jesus in the footsteps of Jesus into Jerusalem where he will be arrested and suffer for the gospel. And does God sometimes lead people, even today, by his Spirit to do particular things at particular times? Absolutely, I'm not denying that. We see it in Scripture, Certainly, and I have no reason to think it doesn't happen today. I've spoken to people, I've read of people who were called to great things and did them in obedience and God blessed them. 
And if that is the case, just line those three things up if you can, or get two of them in line, and, and just ask God, be with me while I do this. I think I'm doing your will. But make sure even then that you talk to others and you listen. In the, the scriptures, we test prophets. Those four daughters of Philip, when they prophesied, they would be tested. And people would weigh the prophecy. We test every spirit. We must test our own inward inclinations because we're not always perfectly able to differentiate our inner voice and desires from the voice of God. Sometimes we confuse them. And don't surround yourself with yes men. That might sound like obvious advice. And when you hear yes men, I mean, we think of corporate or military leaders or political leaders who are surrounding, purposely surrounding themselves with these sort of sniveling sycophants looking only for their own advancement, these sort of groveling flatterers, toadies. But sometimes in our lives, you have accidental yes men. Sometimes in our lives, there are people who mean well, but they're just not very good at telling us the difficult thing that we need to hear. They, they don't want to upset anyone. And so they couch everything and hemming and hawing and ultimately agree with what they know you want to hear. And you know what they're going to say before you bring it to them because you know them. Well, they may not be the best person to offer counsel at a difficult moment. What you need to hear may not be what you want to hear. And recognize that going in. I think we're often like the little girl who wrote the card, Thank you for your present. I have always wanted a pincushion, but not very much. Sometimes we have to thank God for those things that are a bitter pill to swallow. And we have to be ready to hear them. Because God speaks not just to us, but through the saints as a whole. And... When we go to fellow believers, go to them for counsel, not just advice. I know that sounds like I'm being redundant, but what I mean is this. Counsel says, well, when you go, you will suffer. If you don't go, you won't suffer. If you go and you suffer, I'll be sad. I don't want you to go. That's all counsel. Advice is don't do it. Don't go. That's the distinction I'm making. And what I'm saying is when you go to someone for counsel, say, show your work. Don't just tell me what you want me to do or what you would do in my shoes. It's like a math problem. Show me how you got there. Scripture in plain reason. If Luther demanded it, we should demand it as well. When you give me some advice, you show me. With Scripture and plain reason and wisdom. You think I shouldn't give up on that relationship? You think I should confront that coworker? Show me your work. Give me godly counsel, not just advice. Show me your wisdom. Show me your experience. And especially point me to the Scripture and let's read it together and pray for God to open our minds. If you don't show me your work, I don't know if maybe you aren't following Scripture, but rather just going along with the culture. There's an American prosperity notion floating around, even in the church. If it will cause pain, if it might cause some suffering or tribulation for us, for the church itself, it can't be God's will. Well, that's not true, but it's often undergirding even this, I think, as they say to Paul, no, 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 it can't be God's will. You're his guy. He doesn't want you to suffer and be arrested. He wants you to keep on doing the amazing job you're doing. It's basically what Job's friends were doing when they came to him and said, if you're suffering, if you're not prospering, thriving, well, then clearly you're not in line with God's will. Don't make that error and don't go to people who would make that error. And when you, ask, when you encounter it, either call them on it or just make a note, a little asterisk. Because we live in a culture that celebrates this notion, and I mean celebrates it, of if I'm not happy... I'm going to cast off whatever is keeping me from total comfort and satisfaction. And, and around the world you hear, ah, oh, you're so brave. That's so beautiful. 
Tell me more about that. We can fall into it just as well as they could in Tyre or in Caesarea in the days of Paul. I kind of feel like someone was passing out those four spiritual laws tracts in, in Tyre and Caesarea. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Is being imprisoned wonderful to you, Paul? I, I can imagine Paul buying into this after 36 or 37 of the 39 lashes he receives, saying to himself, I'm not really enjoying life to the fullest like I used to. Or as he's floating for a day and a night on the open sea, holding on to some piece of a wrecked ship, saying to himself, I've got to make some changes. I've got to think of me. There is a deeper peace that we have when we don't seek the easy way, when we don't just surround ourselves with people who say, do what's best for you in this moment. A deeper peace, the peace in the midst of the storm, not the absence of waves. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. And he has a point. Our desire to obey God, to lead lives that are pleasing to him, should overshadow our desire to avoid suffering and hardships. And in conclusion, the conclusion is given to us by the text itself. Paul said at the end of all this, I mean, he plays the veto card. I win. You don't want me to go? I want me to go. I'm going. But he says, the will of the Lord be done. Paul, who says, emulate me while I emulate Christ. Now, basically speaking, the same words that Jesus did at the end of his prayer in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. Not just the will of the Lord be known or discovered. That's the fun part, right? But done. The will of the Lord be done. And after all of this, I think verse 15 somehow comes off as being rather anticlimactic. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. <laughs> we got ready and went up. That's what we did. Well, the actually doing of the will of God often seems anticlimactic after all that led up to it. But that's the part Peter missed. Well, Peter and Paul are famous for have, having said, I will even go to death. Right Now, ultimately, Peter did. But when he was trusting in the flesh... And on that, the night of the Last Supper, he said, Oh, ah, there's no way I'll deny you. I'll even die with you. Paul here says, Why are you crying and breaking my heart? You know I'll even die for him. One of them did God's will. One of them just knew God's will. So take your time in determining what God would have you do, where your freedom is, where you are bound by God's word. Talk to others. Listen. Pray. Seek the leading of the Spirit. Pray for wisdom. But before any of that purpose in your spirit, that the moment you know it, you will do it. Because that gap between knowing God's will and doing God's will is what separates Peter in the upper room and Paul on his way to Jerusalem. One of the greatest Christian leaders of the last century was a guy who recently died. His name was John Stott. He was the rector of All Souls Langham Place in London, he wrote, he preached, he evangelized. He was an elder statesman in the church. He was a horrible loss for us a few years ago when he died. But Oz Guinness, he wrote about how he'd known him for many decades. And he writes this, I'll never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. 
May that be our prayer as well. Even when he knew days or weeks were all he had left, I, I'm, I'm setting my face to being faithful to him until my last, my last breath. Though there be more devils than there are tiles on the roof, I will be faithful to him. I will follow him because I love him when he commands, I will say, as you wish. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we seek to honor you with our lives, we would thank you for situations in which we have freedom in Christ to choose what seems best to us as long as we are not disobeying your word, as long as, as we are not violating any commandments or prohibitions you've laid out, Lord, we know we are free to live. And we're thankful for that. Lord, we pray we would be reminded of that by our fellow believers when we start falling into that, that pattern of wanting you to remove every option but one. Lord, thank you for the freedom you've given us. Thank you for the trust that it shows. Thank you for the sanctification that leads us more and more to make wise decisions and to seek your will more and more. And Lord, we pray that out of our love for you growing more and deeper would come an obedience that grows deeper as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.